So what happens when you lose your guide? I've told the story before, my very first time uh, whitewater rafting, and me and my little 12-year-old buddies were all going down the New River back in West Virginia, and we hit that first rapid. It was a class three called Surprise. And we're going down that river, we hit that wall of water, and we're all excited. We'd spent all kinds of time preparing. The, the guide would say, you know, all ahead forward, and we all go ahead forward. All ahead, right back on the left. We had all the commands down pat. And then we hit that first rapid. We made it through. We get on the other side of that wall of water. And we're looking around to see if all our little buddies are there. And they're all there. But guess what? The guide fell out of the boat. Well, now what? All that adrenaline going. And a bunch of 12-year-olds without a guide trying to figure out how are we going to get through that next set of rapids. We got it all down. We know the commands. We know what to do. The thing is, we need someone calling an audible. We need somebody telling us what to do in order for us to know what it is got to do next to get through those rapids. What was needed was a guide. And today we're going to read about a group of men terrified because they believe they're about to lose their guide. Jesus is about to leave his disciples, these 11 men. He's been preparing them and preparing them all this time, showing them the nature of God through how he interacted with people and how he healed disease and, and raised folks from the dead. At least one. And Jesus makes them a, a promise. Because now what? What are they going to do without them? They still need guidance. And Jesus promises them that he's going to send them a helper. Because neither they or us can make it through life without the presence of God in our lives. And beyond that, he promises us in the scripture he's never going to leave, it, leave us. We see it in Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said and listen to these words i will never leave you nor forsake you in james 48 chapter 4 verse 8 it says draw near to god and he will draw near to you the presence of god never leaves us even though christ has ascended what I want to talk about is that guide this morning and ask, how can I know the presence of God in my life? How can I know the presence of God in my life? And the text we're going to look at today comes from John chapter 14. And we'll be reading verses 15 through 26. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 14, starting with verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 
whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Rise, let us go from here. You may be seated. We're in the middle of this series, Living Hope. We've been at this for about one year now, going through the Gospel of John, understanding what it is the, the evangelist, the apostle, has to say to us. And we are getting into some heavily Trinitarian verses. But all of this, John had a purpose in sharing. If you look at the reason the book was written, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, the apostle is hand-picking particular actions of Christ for a clear purpose of us knowing what it takes to get to heaven so that we can believe, so that we can trust Christ, so that we can receive this helper. Life in his name with purpose and eternity later. And this morning I want to talk about uh, four important responses to the passage that we uh, just read. And we discuss not just, we're going to discuss not just the ongoing presence of Christ in our lives, but also there's this wonderful promise in verse 23. Christ said, we will come to him and make our home with him. So let's jump into this passage now. Verse 15 really sets the tone. The condition is, if you love me, then what are you going to do? You will keep my commandments. Well, it's impossible to perfectly love Christ and keep his commandments. As a matter of fact, Christ knows this better than anyone. So what is he going to do? Well, he says it in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you who? Here's where we need to slow down a moment. The English Bible struggles to know what to do with this Greek word. Here it's called helper. The Greek word is paraclete. A paraclete, para to come alongside. And if you go through different versions of the scriptures, uh, different translations, you'll find words like advocate and counselor and comforter. And here in the English Standard Version, it's helper. Because there's not a great way to say it. In Greek culture, this was a legal assistant. This is someone that would appear with you in court. They would be your assistant, maybe your witness, maybe a representative, an advocate. 
But there's a problem with these terms. In modern English, helper sort of has this tone of subordination. And the Holy Spirit, who's fully God, is not subordinate to those whom he is helping. We are rather subordinate to him. And then also this term counselor, it can get confused with, you know, like a a marriage counselor or a camp counselor. And then comforter, that sounds like, you know, an old blanket you'd curl up with in the corner. But the name is important because it speaks to both identity and to function, who he is and what he does. And all these terms make up who he is and what he does. In the past, I've, I've used this analogy of the Holy Spirit being like a personal trainer who's got 24-7, 365 access to you. And you're like a good trainer would say, look, we could do this the easy way or we're going to do this, we could do it the hard way, but you're going to change. I'm going to make you someone different. But he's even more than that. So you have to imagine the most comforting person you know, maybe a grandmother or a mother or a father or your closest friend. And then also your attorney, your therapist, and your trainer. Now you're starting to get some idea of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, one particular king in the book of Judges, his name was Othniel, he had a huge task to perform. That's when you see the Holy Spirit coming in momentarily from time to time to help people out. You see it in Judges 3.10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, this king Othniel, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan Rishathaim. Easy for you to say. I had to practice a lot to get that name down. And there's other times when the Holy Spirit would, would show up in the Old Testament. What Jesus is speaking of here is an abiding, permanent relationship in which the Spirit would remain with believers for the rest of their lives, really for eternity. So Jesus was the first paraclete, the first helper, and now another. He's sending a second So the first important response for us is to receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you do that? And probably the most straightforward verse is Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard, listen to this carefully, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you heard it and believed in him. Speaking of Christ, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit begins at the very second, the very moment you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In that second, you become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is how you receive the Spirit. It's by faith in Christ. And that is our first response to this passage, is to receive the Holy Spirit. And then let's go back to our disciples. And and for men who believe that there was only one God, they are having to put together, you know, they have to put together the pieces that they're looking at God in Christ. Remember, they believe in one God. What are they going to do with these, these different persons? Jesus explains further in verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
some light bulbs were probably starting to come on for the disciples, although I think they're still having to put all the pieces together. They won't fully get it till the Holy Spirit indwells them. The Spirit of truth whom Jesus is speaking of as a person, he, referring to the Holy Spirit, he is a he. He is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. And Jesus says he dwells with you now, with, the prepositions are important, with you now and will dwell in you in the future. So the Spirit has been with them in this way, uh, as well as strengthen them occasionally as they needed help when they preached, performed miracles. However, the future, Jesus the Father, the Spirit, would not only be with them, but in them as well. So we have this indwelling Spirit of truth, which the text says the world has no inkling of. Since the beginning, we go all the way back to Adam and Eve, God has made himself known to mankind. With Adam and Eve in the garden, it started out being face-to-face, walking with them. And God has made himself known to mankind throughout scriptures. Then he spoke through the prophets and then in the person of Jesus Christ. And don't miss this. From the birth of Christ, I'm sorry, from the birth of the church, the book of Acts, continuing on into the future, all us as Christians, all we as Christians are receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit that holds the church together and keeps it progressing on into the future. Because Throughout time, until the Lord returns, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It will continue by the power of the Holy Spirit. That means until Christ comes back, there will always be a group of Christians on earth who have the orthodox truth. The right teaching. A community of people who believe in this uncorrupted uncorrupted and orthodox truth from God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, received God's word and continue on in that truth. Now, truth is not gained from the world. This verse is making it clear, and that is from those who have rejected God and his word, those who do not have the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they do not have truth. That is the world out there. And every single person at this, in this room at one time, before you were a Christian, and maybe this morning you've not yet put your faith in Christ, we all lived by the world's standards. And it takes a lifetime of God removing us from those standards. They'll continue to hang on. And this is called worldliness. I found a great definition of it. It's from an author, David Wells. His book called Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision. He defines worldliness this way. He says, what is worldliness? It's that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective, which displaces God and his truth from the world, which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason, what makes what makes what is wrong seem normal. See, this is the world without the spirit of truth. Sin looks normal. 
righteousness seems strange. Why is it seeming to the world that it is normal for a man to call himself a woman and a woman to call himself a man? It's becoming normalized. The world says you should feel insecure if you don't have those looks or that money or those friends or that job. See, that is the world that is talking. And you should be afraid of the future, says the world, but that's not the truth. But how do you get the truth? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, if you don't, all like through this room right now, you know, I used to, I studied this class whenever I was in my undergrad called Antenna Theory. And I, I mean to tell you, I couldn't fill up a note card right now with what I learned in that class. But what I do remember is right now through this room, there are like all kinds of radio waves and, and signals that are passing through you right now. But you know what? If you don't have a radio, you have no idea that they're even present. Without the Holy Spirit, you have no idea that the truth is there. The world has backwards ideas. The Holy Spirit is unnoticed by the unsaved who don't have a spiritual life, and therefore they are forced to live like zombies according to the world that is around them. They are the walking dead. Our second response then is to trust God's truth. To trust God's truth. That which the Holy Spirit, the text says, is continually reminding us of, and, and, and that this world will have backwards values. It's always been that way. It will continue to be that way until Christ comes back. And that's why every single Sunday I have to ask myself the question, Lord Jesus, what do you want First Baptist Church to walk away with and do as a result of hearing your word today? Knowing that without the Holy Spirit, you cannot apply the word of God. In our believing community, indwelling each individual here who's put their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is causing us to continue along in truth. So to an outside watching world who does not have the spirit of truth, this community is going to do things that don't make any sense. You should just plan on that. Now, we need to stay connected to these disciples in this narrative. And, and Jesus fully understands the predicament that they would be in without another helper. And, and even if they don't understand, even though Jesus is promising to send them another counselor, doubtless in their minds is, okay, you're sending us somebody else. Clearly you're going, well, what about you? Look at verse 18. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So Jesus, looking at these men, he sees their broken hearts, and he comforts them, and like a parent assuring a child that they'll be home soon. Christ will not leave them as orphans. In that day an orphan was poor and destitute. No one was there to love them. 
he's res- he'll be resurrected, he'll come back, and he's going to make appearances to them and others. And now he's also telling them that because he lives, so will they. Well, what does that mean? He's saying that you're going to be resurrected in the same way that I'm about to show you that I'm going to be resurrected. I'll show you your ultimate pathway of resurrection when I appear to you living after I'm dead. And then verse 20, they can have confidence of this mutual indwelling of them in Christ and Christ in them. Now, what's happening here? Now, saying in that day, he's still speaking of his resurrection appearance, which is just a few days away. And he says they will know, first of all, I am in my father. Now, let's take a quick peek at the end of the book. Jesus, after he's resurrected, appears in a room with them. We'll take a quick look at the end of the book, John 20, verses 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is the day when this stuff he's talking about uh, is going to happen. It's going to go down. He's saying that when you see me die and then you see me alive, you'll know that I'm in my Father. That is to say that I am fully God myself. And that you are in me. Now, what what does that mean, that you're in me? He's saying that the oneness I have with the Father is going to be like the oneness that you have with me. And it'll also be enjoyed by you. This union will be made possible by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And now, still speaking of that day, Jesus begins with verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. (coughs) Now, to have his commandments, notice he's saying my commandments, not the commandments. My commandments, to have them means that there's a mental grasping that goes on. Jesus says the person, that person loves me, and that person, he says, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And now we have to remember that it is not us that takes the initiative in the relationship. And all through the gospel, it's clear that God takes the first step to us before we ever take the first step to him. But this relationship between us and God, between the disciple and Christ, is one characterized by obedience. And the groundwork is being laid for this oneness between Jesus and his disciples that mirrors the oneness between Jesus and his heavenly Father. And they'll develop that more in chapter 17. So the Christian will love and obey Jesus the way that Jesus has demonstrated that he loves and obeys the Father. He's the example. And Jesus says that he'll manifest himself to that person. That means he'll show himself and through the Holy Spirit and by cooperating with the Holy Spirit through love, And obedience, Christ continues to make himself known to us. He states this again in verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So love and obedience go hand in hand. We start talking about our relationship to God, and and as we obey the word of God, Christian love manifests itself in us. And we start more and more to reveal our true identity. You know, as we start to shed those things that are important to the world, those fears, those insecurities, what's left? We're free more and more to love. 
to love the way Christ does and to experience that love ourselves. And the apostle John recognized that we love and obey God not because we just conjure it up within ourselves by our own power. You know, I'm just going to, I'm really going to love God today. I'm just going to try harder. It comes as we understand more and more deeply how loved we are. In another letter John wrote, this was in uh, 1 John 4.19, he wrote three more epistles. And in 1 John 4.19 it says, we love because he first loved us. And as you and I dwell more deeply on that love Christ has for us, we will love him more and more. But you've got to take the time to do that. It's very easy to just gloss over, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Jesus, he loves me. Okay, yeah, next. Stop with that. Dwell on that a little bit. Think about that. Johnny Erickson Tata, she wrote about love and obedience. They're linking together. If you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is, she, uh, as, a, as a teenager, was in a diving accident. She was paralyzed from that point on, from the, the neck down. And she wrote a book called Diamonds in the Dust. And in there she said this. She said, always love is a choice. You come up against scores of opportunities every day to love or not to love. You encounter hundreds of small chances to please your friends, delight your Lord, and encourage your family. That's why love and obedience are intimately linked. You can't have one without the other. Our third response to this passage then is to practice love and obedience. Practice it. Meditate on the love of Christ. The more deeply you see Jesus, the greater your love will be for him. We cannot get lazy in our pursuit of God. We have to be in the word. We have to be in prayer and then look at the result of this love and obedience. It starts with a clarifying question by Judas. Now, this is not Judas the betrayer. He's already left the room. This is a different Judas. Look at 14 verses 22. Let's see. Uh, yeah, 22 and uh, 23. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoa. Now, he was a bit confused by this. You know, the, the, the disciples, they always thought the Messiah would show up and make himself known publicly to the whole world. Uh Jesus will do this at his second coming, but Jesus, he stays on this subject of what he brought up in verse 21 about love and obedience. And then he makes that wonderful promise in verse 23. And then we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, see, this is the result of this loving obedience. It's, it's this intimate fellowship with God. And this is a relationship available to followers of Jesus Christ. You see, the kingdom of God is here already. And you look around and you think, well, that's, that can't be. Look around. How can it be that the kingdom of God is here? Well, it's here already and not yet. It's not fully here yet. But as Christians receive this ministry of the Holy Spirit, and as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and this manifestation is going on, we start in our communities of Christians to look more and more like the kingdom. 
And even though our outer circumstances may be horrible and may be getting worse. And by the way, you know, let me mention, let me mention to our young people, I owe you an apology. And maybe I need to apologize on behalf of some others for always painting things as if it's all just going to hell in a handbasket. Because you've got a joyful future in front of you. You get to show the world Christ in ways that the previous generations never have. And you're going to be up against things the rest of us have never faced. And you know what? You're going to do it. And you're going to do it well. And you're going to do it better than we have. So remember that, please. But see, even though things can be challenging around us, Things don't look like the kingdom of God around us. Through that, we can have this growing intimacy with God. And as love and obedience grow, more and more do we find ourselves at home with God. I don't think I can't say it better than Charles Spurgeon did. He put it this way. He said, little faith will take your soul to heaven. That's true. But great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Your heart can become a heaven on earth as you commune with the Lord and worship him. You know, when I'm putting these sermons together, yeah, I've got a 30-minute time budget. And there are incredible writings I was not unable to include with this. There is a fantastic book written by a Puritan by the name of John Owen called Communion with God. And in that book, he describes what it looks like to have communion with each person of the Trinity. Now, there's an abridged version of that that I would highly encourage you to check out. There's an unabridged version, and, you know, the Puritans, uh, if they can say it in a hundred words, they won't use five because they, they are wordy. If you can get that abridged version, it's well worth your time to check it out. Communion with God by John Owen. He meditated on this deeply. He understood that it is possible that as you and I grow in our faith, that the anxieties, there's where the battle is fought. The anxieties, the worries, and the fears of this world, those things that plague your heart become supplanted with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Spurgeon is talking about here. If you just look around at your circumstances, forget it. They're always going to be challenging. And the Lord will continue. This was, a, this was a thought of Owen, that the Holy Spirit will continue to bring affliction and trouble in your life because that is how you grow. And as challenging for me as, as doing church in the past few years has been, I tell you what, it continues to drive you like a nail into the love of God. It deepens your prayer life as you depend more and more on Him. So our final res response is to enjoy God's fellowship. Enjoy His fellowship. <coughs> that idea that God is continually becoming more and more at home with you in your heart. So putting it all together, enjoy Christ's presence through the indwelling spirit by expressing love through obedience. I want to say it again. Enjoy. Christ is still present in you, even though he's ascended. He's present in you through the abiding, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit going on to you right now. <coughs> and we express love more and more as we obey more and more and we obey more and more as we understand how much God loves us more and more I want to close with a, a scene from a brilliant 
brilliant work of art called The Princess Bride. And if you've seen that, you know how the beginning of it goes. There's a, there's a princess named Buttercup who's got a servant named Wesley. And she's always telling him what to do. And, and every time she tells him what to do, he has the same response. He says, as you wish, as you wish. And soon this princess realized that when, when Wesley was saying, as you wish, what he was really saying was, I love you. And that joyful obedience to her commands, it flowed out of this great love for her. And it's the same way with Jesus. The more you love him, the more you want to obey him, the more you will say, as you wish. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your abiding presence with us, that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And God, we look forward to a joyful future as day by day we know you more and more, no matter our circumstances, no matter what the world looks like. I thank you for our young people who are here today to hear your word. And Lord, I pray for their future that they will walk with the Spirit, that they will enjoy the walk, that we who are further along would not paint a picture of doom and gloom, but a picture of joy that they'll have walking with you.